Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Vanity Fair. You're on Tinder? Yeah, I'm on Tinder. Who the fuck is on Tinder in Ennis? Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Chris Murphy. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are here to discuss part three of season four of the HBO series True Detective Night Country. And later on, Isabella LeBlanc, who plays Leah, will be stopping by to talk about her frosty relationship with her stepmother, Liz Danvers. But first, let's do a quick recap of part three. Navarro and Danvers go through the evidence of Raymond Clark's fuck trailer and create a timeline <laughs> of his relationship with Annie Kay. I forgot we coined fuck trailer. Uh, yes, we did. <laughs> I mean, it was a little weird, but he was crazy about her. But Annie changed when they started going out. Changed how? She didn't want anybody to know they were together. That was weird. As Navarro joins the search for Raymond Clark, she is confronted with visions while she walks on the ice. She also gets a call that her sister is in trouble. That's the water. The sea. I think stuff. Bad stuff. I know, I know, I know. The only researcher found alive, Lund, awakes from his coma and has a very creepy message to deliver to Navarro. Hello, Evangeline. Your mother says hello. She's waiting for you. Junior Detective Pete Pryor cracks Annie Kay's cell phone and a final video raises even more questions. I just want to say as we're starting, so uh, there's been this trend on TV shows, especially in the last two years. Maybe I'm just hypersensitive to it as somebody who gave birth in the last two years. Yeah, I was thinking about you this episode. Of super, oh, thank you. Thinking of my labor Trauma, experience. Trauma, yeah. <laughs> my- <laughs> well, but that's the thing, right, is that all of the birth scenes that we've seen on Prestige TV in the past two years especially have been dramatic and traumatic and, like, horrible and scarring. House of Dragons, Dead Ringers. It just, yes. there were so many examples. It just, of- they just kept 
happening, and oh. I was so thrilled to see a scene like that where it's intense, but then the baby is fine and the woman is also fine. And it's, and it's fast between intense and fine. Yes. Like, like it, that moment is not dragged out, which yeah. I think is which, great. Which, like, you know, as as the two of you also know, is very true to life. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm intimately um, But no, yeah, birth, birth obviously, yeah, very, very intense and very scary, but, you know, most of the time things do not turn out the way they do on television yeah, <laughs> and right. or in recent TV where there's been this overcorrection where it's like for too long, you know, we skate past the nasty parts of womanhood and, you know, the, the female body. And so now we're going to lean way hard in the other direction and mm-hmm. we're just going to show like how awful it is all the right. time. And it's uh, I was I, I feel like you can really tell that this was like made by a woman in that way. It was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not putting a microscope on that, though. I will say that brief moment. Awful. It, awful. I yes. couldn't even I yeah. couldn't. Oh, but, yes. But are you implying that Nick Pizzolatto would not have written that scene? This <laughs> he would have. Listen, that mother would have been topless, first of all. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. She would have, for some reason, been bouncing up and down. <laughs> right, right. Oh. It would have been at some sort of sex party. Um, <laughs> where, yeah, typical, typical uh, birth Yeah, where you give birth. Classic. Um, I thought this was a really great way to meet. Annie Kay, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like in her element. We'd heard about her as being this kind of antagonizer of the mind and sort of a, just a troublemaker in the community. And, like, obviously we were somewhat aware that, like, that was supposed to be not as actually negative as maybe Danvers thinks it is. But to have her living this life or do, doing this work behind literal closed doors that is so vital to the community and is so dwindling in the community, I think really establishes her as not some totally perfect, morally 100% righteous person, but as someone who was trying to do good in a place that seems very allergic to good. Yeah, and mm-hmm. especially, you know, rounding out her character in the way that a victim on a show like this doesn't yes. always yeah. get to mm-hmm. be more than a name. Yeah, yeah. and it also makes Navarro's kind of obsession with avenging her death make more sense, too, right? Right, right. You, yeah. you see Navarro have this really powerful moment and experience watching Annie save a life and knowing that Navarro couldn't do the same thing for Annie adds another layer into why she's so obsessed with this in the first place. And it cuts through, I think, a lot of what we've seen from Navarro and Danvers. As, you know, they're, they're pessimists. You know, she has her sister to care about. So there's that. And, and obviously Danvers has Leah and pe- she cares about things. But they're, they seem both very negative on, like, not just the human experience, but the human experience within this town. Yeah. And here's Annie, who is also probably pretty horrified by what she's seen in her community. I mean, she protests all that. But she is at least trying to make things better and mm. safer. And and I don't always get the impression from Danvers and Navarro that that's really their top priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, know? when you look at the town, the town right, is I mean, getting yeah. really dark. Yeah. It's getting yeah. really dark in night country. I'm, I would not go to Ennis if you gave me a million dollars. That's the thing, right? You do sort of watch and you're like, why are you still Just there? Get out of Alaska. Yeah. Like, go, down to, go down south, go to Anchorage, go to Juno even. Yeah, come on. Juno yeah. is a good theater, a regional theater. <laughs> Pioneer theater. Um, and in this episode, we also learn more, the, the vital piece of backstory, I think, that we've been missing between Navarro and Danvers, which is why their partnership dissolved in the first place um, with the Wheeler case. Uh, True, but then we see Danvers lie about it. Mm -hmm. She lies about it to... Peter Pryor, mm-hmm. yeah, and is like, well, we still we still don't know the full story of what actually happened. But yet. if we're looking at the flashback, it's clearly like, it's not what it's she clearly said. not what she said. She said that the guy Wheeler, it was a murder suicide. But then he turns in a very creepy way mm-hmm. and like looks at Danvers and Navarro. So I'm like, yeah. why did she lie? What is that about? Yeah, one one of them definitely killed him. I like the um the structure of that where Danvers is telling this story to Pryor. 
and it starts to flash back, and you're like, okay, this is going to be the Rashomon version of what how, what Dan the lie that Danvers is telling, or whatever she whatever is going on with this guy because she said he was dead, he was not dead. Mm-hmm. But I like that the show shows us something closer to what happened. Like I think that's a good sort of like making Danvers an unreliable narrator, even in this moment where like the show doesn't need to like prove to us that she's not telling the truth. I don't know. I just yeah. I like that sort of juxtaposition. Yeah, it do, um, it feels it's a it's a show that doesn't underestimate the intelligence of its audience, right. which mm-hmm. is nice to see. Exactly. And I really like that at first I was a little nervous that oh, these two cops, you know, harrowed by past experience and bad cases from from the past was was a little bit, like, familiar, let's say, yeah. maybe a little cliche. <laughs> but I four. think in these two cases now, when we, we'll see what develops with the Wheeler thing, but, like, at least with Annie Kay, like, it's like, oh, okay, so this is actually, but th- these are distinct stories. Like, these are not just kind of your run-of-the-mill, a young woman was killed and I couldn't find her killer and I couldn't get over it. It's specifically this woman was killed and this mm-hmm. this per- this person. And she also had this added damage of this other case that we're now getting some elucidation on. It just adds to the texture of the show in a way that makes it feel more specific and mm. authorial rather than generic. And it's all very thematically connecting, you know, violent, yeah. violence against women as yeah. is a true detective hallmark still is kind of the the thread that runs through all of these mm-hmm. different things. But I do like, too, that we're sort of expanding to get into climate change in the mines and whatnot. I mean, with this episode with Hank, Hank, who I go back and forth with him. I thought mm-hmm. he was too dumb to have anything to do with it. And now this episode, I'm like, well, why didn't you say that you got a call about Annie and right. mm-hmm. Clark? Oh, right. he's, he's hiding He's stuff. hiding something, and it seems like he's protecting the miners, and which are, by and large, the white people. It's sort mm-hmm. of becoming clear that it's you know white people versus indigenous people in terms of who wants the mine, who doesn't right. want the mine. And it feels like obviously Hank's on this side. Him and his what are they? She always call them the, his cronies, his hillbillies. Yeah, <laughs> him and his hillbillies who seem worthless are totally in the mine's hand or the mine's interest or protecting the mine at the expense of Annie Kay. And I was like, and we've seen in the past episode like Hank sending money to this woman in Russia or whatever. And it's like, is that just from his salary or maybe he's in the pocket of somebody? Working you know, with a lot. Like we know, like because clearly him he, he was he was weird about the file then. We find out about this phone call that maybe he dismissed unfairly as a crank call, but like it was kind of specific for that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, clearly, there is some obfuscation of. Well, and he also, you know, Navarro says they want to find Raymond Clark, the escaped scientist, alive. And Hank's like, do we? And it's like, oh, do you not want him to? He, because he goes he out gonna, with this like armed posse yeah. of civilians. Is he going to tell on Vigilantes. you? Vigilantes. Right, yeah. exactly. And, he's, and he says he's armed and dangerous. And it's like, we don't necessarily know, know that, that at all. all. Like, he could have been a victim. All of his colleagues are dead. Well, not clearly. all of them. Well, oh, right. right. Oh, right. Oh, God. Back to the guy in the— There is some the, body horror. Yeah. I watched this season. episode at 1 in the morning. Oh, no. Why would you do that I to don't know. I could not—I really didn't sleep because of— Yeah. The noise that he was—that Lund was making in bed and the way he moved—I mean, it was a monster movie. Monster. Yeah. No, she's out. She's out there. In the ice. Who's out there? She came for us. In the dark. Well, then, he, I mean, he literally gets possessed by a demon, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sits, does the creepy, sit, like, mm-hmm. Michael Myers sit, sit up, up straight, you know, with yeah. no no arms needed? Yeah, your mother yeah. says hello. Yeah, like, right, yeah, that. I mean, okay, so let's talk about that moment and just the general supernatural. We're, we're in episode three now, like, how supernatural do we feel the show is getting? I mean, obviously, this is a town where people see ghosts, maybe because they're just crazy from the darkness or whatever. But that moment, that is pure 
exorcism Emily Rose. That doesn't thing. seem like, like the yeah. kind of thing you can really explain by anything other than it's a demon from hell. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> Who if, has possessed this If man. Navarro is hallucinating that, she has worse problems than <laughs> right. I thought. Yeah. Like she, well, should, she should maybe check out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Into the lighthouse potentially. Yes. Like, it's interesting because I know we, we talked a little bit about how supernatural do we want it to get. And I'm moved and afraid and also enjoying the supernatural elements of the story. I do think that the actual mystery will be able to be revealed by science and logic and whatnot. But I do think part of why it's set in Ennis, part of what we're doing here is exploring the spiritual implications of, you know, Western culture and Native culture and that clash. And what does that look like and how that can, even if it isn't real per se, even if that man didn't, you know, really rise slowly and point into the distance, it felt real to Navarro. And that is... Mm -hmm. Maybe all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> Whether or not he actually did that, if she saw that, that could have very real implications for how the case goes, what she ends up doing next. That's true. Yeah, like Navarro, yeah. Navarro is losing it a little bit. She's she that, losing she, it. That, that orange. The orange that she throws and comes back. Yeah. That's <laughs> creepy. You know what? I never liked oranges. <laughs> No, that, yeah, that's, that's, and also I just love the visual oddity of seeing this bright, lovely fruit Mm -hmm. in the middle of this like darkened tundra hellscape. You know, I I thought that was, that was interesting. And there's something almost, not biblical because that's an apple, but like there's something. Well, it's from the, it's from the Godfather, right? I mean, that's, that's where like oranges signal death. Is that right? Oh, okay. right. Yeah. yeah, that is. Yeah. When I, when you see an orange in the Godfather movies, just buckle up. <laughs> all right, well, that's, <laughs> something's uh, going to happen. I'll have to rewatch well, with that in mind. Okay, so do we think that all of Salah saw an orange and then they froze to death? Because right. we learned. Well, no, that, that guy was making a ham sandwich. <laughs> yeah, he was right. making a ham yeah. sandwich. But we learned this episode that they didn't freeze to death. That mm-hmm. they just they froze were, after they after died. they died. They were startled to death or something. Right. Something else happened to them, which is creepy, and we're also you know still wondering where this last scientist is and from what the hairdresser says he wasn't she's like a little weird but he wasn't creepy mm-hmm. yeah. right and it seems to me like the hairdresser is wrong yeah, right he seems really fucking creepy and like the whole thing about like why is the relationship a secret and they obviously had this RV set up out in the middle of nowhere why was he fixated on her tattoo why was he fixated on her t- tattoo I just but I don't know I just kind of feel like it's too obvious if the boyfriend did it in these circumstances. Yeah. But maybe that's the kind of double fake is that, like, it's ch- telling us to look in all these different directions because it could never be this obvious. And then the reveal is that it is actually. Oh, so yeah. that's the, uh, the undoing. The undoing. <laughs> well, yes, Very exactly. the undoing. I knew there was some example rattling in my head. HBO, yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah, but I don't know because, like, I, I. So what we're saying is that Hugh Grant killed Annie Kay. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Oh, sorry for the. The undoing spoiler. <laughs> I'm not. You should have seen that by now. Yeah, seen it coming for sure. <laughs> I thought it was interesting to go back to Salat because now I'm like sort of obsessed with these scientists and and how they died and whether or not they died. They're they're melting, the corpsicle melting, right? And we're seeing their limbs and whatnot. It reminded me of the caribous from the first scene mm-hmm. and them, them sort of all the caribous like moving the very opening shot of the series. And I wonder if there's something with that in terms of them all dying out there and what they saw and whether or not there's a, there's a connection there. I've started to think about how when with global warming, climate change, when the tundra is thawing, all these diseases they fear are going to get released. And right. I'm almost wondering if, like, the mine 
accidentally tapped into something. And so there's like a psychological, like there's some sort of It's like a rabies thing where yeah, it, it yeah. makes you go nuts. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, because it feels like we see, yeah, why does the show start with these animals running, killing themselves, killing, yeah. essentially? Why did, the, you know, how did these guys end up there? But and, and they, you know. Oh my God, is it the happening? <laughs> Is this okay. M. Night Shyamalan? I knew I had an example of that in my head. Yeah, yeah. It's in the air. It's the yeah. fog. You know, if I, that is the explanation, I will I will do a slow clap. <laughs> yeah, because oh, it just it feels so like funny. there's there's a mass psychosis. And I think that goes back to a bit like what Fiona Shaw's character was mm. saying in an earlier episode. Mr. Like Earth. that this place is where the earth is cracking open mm-hmm. and, and like mm. things are ending here. And, you know, and, and wouldn't it make sense that some sort of malevolence that can be scientifically explained yeah. is being released by the cracking open? of the earth. Which yeah. could scare you to death. Like, it scares a caribou and, like, it's maybe it scared all those scientists to death. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, if that is the explanation, then everybody else in that town better watch out. And everyone's hallucinating. Yeah. Maybe there's something in the air. There's, like, yeah. a gas leak or something. Like, yeah. I mean, although, I mean, Navarro's hallucinations can't entirely be explained because, no. you know, she's seeing visions of Jodie Foster's dead son. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Who is, yeah, I mean, which, you know, there's a little boy holds holding the polar bear and we've seen Jody with the polar yeah. bear. And, yeah. You know, he says, tell my mommy. So I, that doesn't seem like, you know, you don't you don't have to be a, a true detective to put these pieces <laughs> together. Yeah, that so does. when she does. And like, how would Navarro know? I mean, right. I guess Navarro knows Danvers. So she knows right. that, that she, she had a yeah. kid. But but that scene where she's running on the ice and slips and because she sees someone out on the ice and, and she mm-hmm. slips and. Falls and then is immediately in a dry place. She's in a deserty Desert. kind of looking place. Mm-hmm. But is that supposed to be the tundra thousands of years from now when all the ice is oh, melted? I assumed oh. that it was like a vision back from, to from when the she from the army. Okay. From our army. I okay. assumed that it was army, okay. but that could be that could oh, make more if, sense. Oh, but if it's a Mad Max future, then that's well, a that's a cool. Maybe it's both. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like what what extreme polar opposites climate wise? So polar opposites. Ah, there ah. we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Does anybody ever call Danvers and Navarro polar opposites? I think that they should. Yeah. <laughs> it better they happen. Don't. That better be with the finale episode. Yeah. <laughs> that would be like the network TV comedy objective. Yeah. <laughs> and they're standing back to back with their arms crossed. <laughs> yeah, it's Rizzoli and Isles yeah. polar opposites. She does it by the book. Yeah. <laughs> Navarro and Danvers. She threw the book out. Yeah. <laughs> um, we didn't talk about the final cliffhanger in this episode, which is... Pete actually managing to crack Annie's phone. Yeah. And we see a very terrifying or like yeah. 10 second horror movie. My name is Annie Kodok. If anything happens, and like the screaming and the screaming. I mean, it's really yeah, the sound yeah. people this episode. Whew. I mean, the breathing and then also the, the screaming. Oh, and to meet her at the beginning of this episode, so calm, cool, collected, knowing she's going to get arrested, but like, I got to get this thing done first. And then to have that be the last thing we see of her is her like in utter terror. Like, it's kind of like what Danvers, at, you know, and Pryor were talking about last episode where it's like, what would make you so scared you ran out with your shoes on? What yeah. would make Annie Kay, who we've seen be very competent, collected, cool, like that scared, you know? That and it does, I mean, it echoes, I'm sure intentionally, what happened right before all the scientists were killed, which mm-hmm. raised the possibility that maybe the same thing killed both of them. Yeah. Right, right. Even though the scientist said she is back, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't that what they said? She's, she's awake. She's, she's awake. awake. She's awake. Yeah. Um, and and then Lund is in the bed screaming about how she's... We woke her up. We woke yeah. her up and all that stuff. And Danvers is like, you woke who up? And mm-hmm. she won't, you know. And you know it. who really wasn't helpful? Oliver Tadak. Mm. <laughs> when they go, when Danvers and Navarro go to that man in the shack mm-hmm. and is like, hey, you dated the hairdresser. Yep. Can you tell us anything? And then he freaks out once they're like, all of the Salah men are dead. And then he says... 
Lundy? He asked specifically about Lundy. He asked specifically about Lundy, so that has to be something. Yeah, which is interesting because, like, we don't really know a lot of these people by personality or whatever beyond two at this point. Yeah. Like, and, and Lund even, we just know him because he's the one who's the boy who lived. <laughs> well, one of the boys who lived. Um, <laughs> for but to ha- yeah, to have this other guy like mention him by name specifically, mm-hmm. that, that was interesting. And I will say that was interesting to go back to the spiritual uh, aspect of it. We do have Navarro saying that she never learned her Inupiaq name. Her mm-hmm. mom never told her that. And then Oliver basically calls her out for that yeah. two seconds into that scene. She feels pretty unfair. It's, it's not pretty, like it's her fault. It's pretty rude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> pretty rude of him. And then kicks them out of the house. So I, I'm i curious, maybe Oliver, I certainly didn't like him, what role that he played because he knows more than he's saying. He, yeah. he probably does, but he also seems kind of like a classic red herring. You know, yeah. they're going off, they're chasing this lead, they're going out far, you know, in that direction when maybe they should be going in the other direction entirely. Like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not convinced that he actually has much to do with the story because but, we're three episodes in, we have three left. Like, there's some no. time to, there's some time to spend before we can actually solve this. It is interesting, though, that in little increments that we're learning that this lab and these scientists were not as cloistered as a lot of people thought. Yeah. They were like, no one comes in, no one goes out, that's they're it. Getting their like, haircut? Well, no, there were the house cleaners. They, they, two of them were dating people. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they were interacting with the community because how could they not? Everyone here is so lonely and horny and sad and broken. <laughs> and, like, like of course they're going to not leave the lab once in a while or have people come to them. I guess I'm just wondering, like, how much more involved were the lab people with the scientists in the community, specifically with the mine maybe or other – I don't know. I don't know who else. But, like, their work was not as airtight, it seems, as we were told in episodes one and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both Navarro and Danvers in this episode are dealing with their, well, troubled in one case and difficult in another. Danvers and Leah have some conflict here. With some family conflict. Some family yeah. conflict that, you know, uh, we're talking to Isabel LeBanc for this episode, so she'll I'll give a little more context for that. But like, Who plays Leah? Oh, excuse me. Yes, who plays Leah? Like, she's exploring her heritage, and Danvers really doesn't want that. I'm assuming because she's like— if you act up, you're going to get hurt. Yes, like, people, like Annie like, K. If you want to get the the tattoo on your chin at some other safer place, okay, fine. But you don't do that here because mm-hmm. it's too dangerous. You, you, you'll be seen as an Annie K type, and that's bad. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, the scene with Jodie Foster wiping the tattoo off of yeah. Leah's face was so it's so hard to watch because you can feel that Danvers doing that out of a mother's protection, out of right. a love, but it feels to Leah clearly like and a you know, denying of her identity. Yeah, and, and a mother who has lost a child. Yes. Yeah. And so is clearly, you know, very scared about losing another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what Leah said ultimately seemed to get through or resonate with Danvers at least a little bit because Danvers went to the funeral for the stillborn baby. Mm-hmm. What that scene was really, ugh. I mean, the, the juxtaposition of that scene with the uh, first scene with we have the successful yeah. birth, but then we have sort of the funeral for mm-hmm. the ceremony for the stillborn baby and that breathing soundtrack, that labor. Yeah. It was so, it feels so connected to the mines and the water. Yeah, and no, and it's the like, water, yeah, it's if, black water. If we, yeah, if we just have this community of Native women helping each other, like there is life. And then when the mine gets involved, like that has killed this child. Yeah. Yeah. And Danvers had, or is blind to it and she doesn't care, says Leah, and then she finally has to sort of come face to face with it. Yeah, and like this episode takes pains to show that Danvers has a particular way with children. She takes the hairdresser's daughter when away. she makes puddles, mac and cheese. She does yeah. cheese thing and ta- <laughs> talks about puddles the unicorn. Obviously does seem genuinely bereft at the, at the death of this this baby. Like, 
there is a softness to her that she has had to turn off for whatever reason. And and I think that like that's there in the conflict with Leah where it's like Leah's a bit older, has more autonomy, can't just easily receive whatever love care that Danvers is trying to give. And the wiping off of the tattoo, it's like, I don't know, it brings to mind the long and terrible history in the United States and Canada of Native children being taken from their family members and forcibly, quote unquote, assimilated into white culture. Mm. And is this image of a white woman wiping this thing off her Native daughter, you know, stepdaughter's face, like kind of evoking that in some ways. And so Danvers, as much as she cares about children, is still insensitively stomping all over the culture with women. And yeah, and probably also sees, you know, Leah embracing her birth culture as a rejection of Danvers. Mm. Right, right. And meanwhile, you know, uh, Navarro's sister is perhaps more in tune with the things around her, not in a political level like Leah, but in a sort of more spiritual level, which might just be mental illness or whatever. And Navarro gets a phone call. It's the bar owner, right, I think? Yeah. And he says, she was talking about someone coming, someone on their way. So we're hearing more and more of this language of something approaching or having woken up and and I don't know. Um, What do we think about where Navarro's sister is headed. It can't be anywhere good. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. feel like that's yeah. the entire yeah. conversation. Yeah. But how much of a bearing do we think it has on the action, the events, the major action of the TV show? Like, is this just sort of, not just, but is it more of a foil to get at something deeper in Navarro? Or is something coming? Is that have something to do with a lot? Is that have something to do with the deaths yeah. that have occurred? Well, listen, if Julia is the murderer, then hats off because <laughs> wouldn't have not seen that, that coming. coming. No, yeah. no. But I'm now, I'm now I'm thinking, now that I feel like we've leaned more into the supernatural and the spiritual world, I think that it's not just... Uh, Julia's not just sort of meant to be a device to get to know Navarro, but... She, that something that is coming is real mm-hmm. and it's coming for everybody yeah. and everybody should be worried and we should be, it's Cassandra. She sees something that we don't see. Mm-hmm. Something is happening to all of us. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. makes sense. Exactly. And and I kind of feel like in in her worldview and perhaps it should, we, it should be ours and those of the characters, Oh, is the sun maybe never going to come back up? Like, like <laughs> is, is this day? it? Is yeah. the, has the world ended pretty much and we're just kind of the last one staggering around before this thing comes and gets us? Or Julia just needs mental help and, you know, whatever. But I think I think that my hunch is that she will more sort of exist as a thematic part of the show rather than strictly involved with our murder mystery plot. But mm. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. But if she is. Yeah. No, it would be a surprise. It would be a surprise. Yeah. Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with Isabella LeBlanc, who plays Leah, the stepdaughter of Liz Danvers. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself. When all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. 
make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Amid our supernatural murder mystery, there's also some really sort of intense family drama that's transpiring between Liz Danvers and her stepdaughter, Leah. Yeah, it seems like Liz Danvers might be a tough woman to be uh, raised by. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've got some tension that we're dealing with. that It, it boils over in this episode. Um, Leah's exploring her culture. Danvers is not such a big fan of that. Yeah. And I would also think that Jodie Foster is a tough screen partner. I mean, at least intimidating. Oh, yeah. Um, so we wanted to go to the source to find out if that is, in fact, true. So we got we talked to Isabella LeBlanc, who plays Leah on the show, uh, to just to hear about, like, what it is to work with Foster, to work with Issa Lopez, to be in the dark for however long she shot, which we, I think was a long time. Months. months and months. Uh, Again, yeah. couldn't pay me, yeah. but I'm very glad they made the show. Yeah, yeah. But she's a, a, a lovely actor and a, a really great uh, conversation. So enjoy that conversation. Hi, Isabella. Hello, hello. So, Isabella, can you tell us how you got involved in this season of True Detective? What was the audition process like? Yeah, my audition process, I mean, from my end, felt very fast and furious. I think from their end, it was probably less so, but... I think it was like around October of last year, I um, got asked to do a Zoom with Issa. We went straight to Zoom. I didn't do a self-tape, which is usually the thing, Um, but I went straight to Zoom with Issa. And then a week later, they called that I booked it. And then I was on a flight to Iceland, I think like two or three days after that. So start to finish, it was all like a week and a half, maybe. Um, And then next thing I knew, I was in Reykjavik. (laughs) Wow, that's wild. And how long were you filming there? I mean, on and off for six months. I came home once over the holiday break, but otherwise, yeah, was hanging out over there. And you're from Minnesota, so you didn't have to buy a whole new winter wardrobe, at least, (laughs) in order to go. No. Yeah. It was so funny. My manager, who's based in L.A., she was terrified for me. She was sending me um, all these texts and messages being like, do you have boots? Like, they can buy you boots if you need. Like, if you need a winter coat, we can get you a winter coat. I was like, oh, no, I've been there, done that. (laughs) Nothing for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm built for it. Yeah. When did you know that Jodie Foster was going to be playing your stepmother? I knew it like when I was auditioning. So when I was like doing these sides, I was like, oh, and this would be me talking to Jodie Foster, (laughs) which just felt wild. And I don't think that was ever something I thought I would get cast as. Um, Obviously, we look very similar. So, (laughs) How would you describe Leah as a character? I mean, she's obviously working through several kind of conflicts in her life between her and her stepmom, between her and her culture. How how does she kind of look to you when 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 you're kind of interpreting her? Yeah, there's like normal teenage stuff and then there's stuff that a teenager doesn't always have to deal with at the same time. Yeah, it's funny when I've been finding when I like talk to people about Leah and I've been seeing in some of the... um, 
talk about the show is like everyone distra- describes her as troubled, mm-hmm. like this troubled teenager. And I'm like, I don't know if Leah's that troubled. Like all things considered, I think she's like got a really solid head on her shoulders. I think she is just like at a really difficult age where you're like, you're not an adult, but you're definitely not a kid anymore. And as a native kid who's being raised by like a white stepmom, I think she is, you know, really grappling with a lot of like, what's her truth and what's other people's truth. And she's definitely rebelling and she definitely has her moments, but, you know, she's not rebelling for the sake of rebelling. I think she has a really strong moral compass, which I kind of admire about her. Yeah. Yeah. It's really been so uh, wonderful to see Leah sort of wrestle between these two worlds and try to connect with her native identity, but then also deal with her stepmom who is raising her. Um, And there's this really wonderful moment in this episode where Jodie Foster, Liz Danvers, wipes off these markings from Leah's face. And it gets sort of physical, and it's really sort of hard to watch. Can you talk a little bit about filming that scene with Jodie Foster and how that went down? Jodie's like just such a generous scene partner. But it was so funny because she's so much shorter than me. <laughs> and so we we would go to like film this scene where she's like really intimidating me. And she's like, she's very scary. And she's a looming presence. And I feel like I'm like towering over her, which was fun and cool to play with because I do feel like you know, Liz is just as intimidated by Leah as Leah is of Liz. And and so it was really cool to get to to feel like kind of the back and forth on that and feel the moments in which like Leah kind of has the reins and when she's kind of able to like stop the record. And then when Liz kind of jumps in and, and takes over again. And, and so it was like as an actor, a, a really exciting moment to kind of explore. And, and yeah, and Jody's wonderful. And yeah, it's such a, a, a pivotal part of Leah's journey and kind of a heartbreaking one. Mm-hmm. What was it? What were your first interactions with Jody? like? I mean, she's your she's your primary scene partner. And that kind of that must be a little intimidating for anybody, you know, definitely. <laughs> but again, she's like very chill, like, like, it doesn't feel like it should be possible to be kind of so cool and so talented and so just like easy to be around. Um, but I, I felt really lucky that we got some table work time in the weeks before we started shooting. And so we got to kind of work through some scenes together, talk through some scenes. We really bonded over football. <laughs> Apparently Jody loves football and I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of fantasy football mother-daughter bonds. It's just like the show. Like <laughs> exactly, exactly. Art imitates life. Oh, we love that. When you're filming this stuff, like, um, you know, obviously Lee is getting involved in this these protests against the mining company, and and that seems a very of a lot of significance to the show. But um, do you know how the storyline fits into the grander mystery? Did they tell you that, or are you kind of no pun intended in the dark? <laughs> I knew I had gotten to read all the scripts and and I was just like so yeah I was kind of so moved by this this whole parallel between Leah and this case that Danvers is um working on and but it wasn't really until like halfway through the shoot that um Nivi who plays Annie Kay was mm. in the um uh, makeup trailer with me and 
I kind of saw it. I was like, wow, that kind of looks like me. And and Richard, her, our first um, on set that day, he was like, wow, you guys like really look like each other. And and that was quite not quite a connection I had made is like how how much of Leah I think that Danvers could see in Annie Kay mm. and, and vice versa. Um, and so that was kind of exciting to get to see in the finished product. And then, well, so you're, you're in you're in Iceland, you're shooting. It's always nighttime. I'm assuming it actually is cold outside. Um, yeah, did it feel, were you like, I'm ready for this because I'm from Minnesota, then you get there and it was like, oh shit, this is actually <laughs> like more intense or was it actually something you could handle? I was so humbled. I was so humbled. <laughs> I like really came in guns a blazing thinking that it was going to be like piece of cake. Um, and it it's really intense. It's really wild. And, and the sunlight, that's the big one. And like here in Minnesota, like we still get the sun pretty much all day during the winter and not having the sun, it it, it does things to you. Mm. Yeah. Did you start seeing dead people? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Every day. Normal, normal <laughs> shooting stuff. Um, what exactly. was it like working with Issa? I mean, you know, she's coming from one perspective. You're coming from another. Jody's from another. Like, um, what were the conversations like about the themes of this season? Because it's very, it is heavy in theme and in a really fascinating way. And I'm just curious, like, how much that was spoken about um, during production. I love Isa. I adore her. And I really appreciated the space she made immediately, like right off the bat. Again, like I was coming off of this like kind of crazy fast audition process. I was all of a sudden in another country and I basically like got off the plane and went to meet with Isa. And and she was like, she basically had just asked, she was like, who's Leah to you? Like, who's the Leah you know? Who is the Leah in your community? And we were able to have some really candid conversations from the beginning about like what it felt like for me to grow up as an indigenous teenager, what I see in like my young family members now. And so it felt like there was always the space for that truth. And and Issa was never going to try to tell me that, um, but she was always going to make space for me to find it. And, and it really always just felt like raising, like rising to her occasion and that like she would set up these scenes for me and then she would trust me to figure out how to find what my truth in it was. And, and that felt like a, a big gift. And, and I felt that in Jody too, and that like, she was just always understanding that like, you know, that she wasn't going to get Leah in the way that I was. And so making sure that um, Leah got to remain truthful was something that we all kind of held together. Was it meaningful for you uh, to be acting alongside so many other Indigenous actors, particularly the large company of Indigenous women? Oh, it was so, it was incredible. I like, I feel like so often in this world, it like ends up that I'm the only Native person in a room or in a cast. And it just, it feels like a whole different world to be doing it alongside people that like, you know, understand where you come from and understand what your values are. And and I really feel like I gained a new community and like the um, Alaska Native community that I got to meet and the um, uh, Canadians that I got to meet. Like it, it, I feel like so lucky that I got to go on this journey with them. It, it felt really good. You can really feel that, I think, watching the show. You know, that it may be an overused term, but there was something like a sort of safe space in on this set. And like, um, while these heavy, heavy stories are being told, um, were there 
Was there fun involved, though? I mean, because this is really dark subject matter for a lot of the a lot of the the episodes we've seen thus far. Um, but I feel like sometimes I talk to actors and they say the darkest things are actually weirdly the, the most fun to film. How, how did this shake out for you? Oh, this one was a blast. And it, <laughs> it like almost feels like bad to say that, like I'm like a bad actor thing to say. But it was just like always fun with this team. And even like, you know, on the days that we're shooting, like the scene where like, yeah, Jody's and I are fighting and, and wiping off the lines. Like, again, we're just talking about fantasy football in between takes. Like, it's just <laughs> like a great set. It was a great vibe. The whole crew was wonderful. Um, we got to see so much of Iceland. Finn, who plays Peter Pryor and I, were kind of like the two series regulars, um, young ones that were there for kind of the whole shoot. So um, we became buddies and got to see the little island country together. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, because if it would have been a really heavy, uh, you know, experience between takes and then it's dark all the time, I think maybe you really would start to see dead people <laughs> like it would get be a little too much. Exactly. You did get a chance to see how the show ends. Um, before you started filming it, were you surprised by the, the mysteries reveal? I was like blown away from the beginning. I remember the moment of reading the last um, episode and just being totally blown away. Like I, I definitely didn't see any of it coming. And, and then it was so lovely to then get to do like our table reads, which were the first three episodes, I believe, and getting to like go back and hear everyone read, um, knowing how it ended. It was just like delicious and amazing. And so cool. You shot this now a little bit of a little bit of time ago, so you've had a lot many months of having to keep secrets. When the show's airing, I mean, how hard is it? I'm sure you're going to have tons of family members and friends begging you for answers, and you're you're not going to be able to give them, right? <laughs> exactly. I have a cousin who has a few theories that he's just like convinced of <laughs> in this season. Like every time I see him, he's like, "Well, this is going to happen, right?" And I'm like, "Sorry, I can't say anything. Can't say. I want to lose <laughs> no. my job." Well, without giving anything away, I mean, we have an opening credit sequence that's chock full of interesting imagery or and then the show itself, you know, has various symbols and things like that. Is there any little detail you can say that we as audience members would be wise to pay attention to or may, is that even that giving too much away? Hmm, that's a great question. Let me think. Let me think very carefully about <laughs> yeah. this one. I wouldn't want to get you in trouble. trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can also be a diversion um, if you want to lie to us. That's yeah. fine. We yeah, we won't lie. A red herring. <laughs> a red herring. Um, I'll say that I think to to pay attention to the things you don't have to pay attention to. Mm. Oh, mm -hmm. that's good. That's cryptic and good. Yeah. That's really I like it. I like that sounds it. like something that you would hear a true detective say. Yeah. Ask the right questions. Ask the right questions. There you go. Yeah, that's my Liz Danvers impression. <laughs> <laughs> well, Isabella, thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. And and congrats on this amazing project. It's, it's such a joy to be back in a true detective world, but from a, a different perspective this time around. And um, obviously, you're a huge part of that. So we really appreciate your time. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. This is so lovely. Thank you for having me. Still watching. We'll be right back. And when we return, we're going to give our predictions for who we think the murder or murderers are. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. 
We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mao. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As ever, we're going to end the show with our Who Done It section, where we make a prediction about, well, who done it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can lead off because I kind of already said it in this episode. I think it's some sort of gas or chemical that has driven people to varying degrees of insane and thus tearing eyeballs out and, you know, b- making people run into the snow. So, in a weird, almost anticlimactic way, I don't think there is a single villain except the mine. Like it's, but there's not like a murderer. That's, that's my guess. Mm-hmm. At least for the scientists. Obviously, for Annie Kay, that was a straight-up straight murder. Up murder. Mm-hmm. So that, Unless the gas can cut people's tongues out and well, stab them 32 I times. Kind of, but maybe it <laughs> makes someone do that. Uh, um, it's also so, possible. So, okay. I'm a, yeah, I'm going to say that it's some sort of gas, uh, but also Clark maybe <laughs> did kill Annie Kay. Mm-hmm. Also, Clark. Ugh, okay. Wow. I got to put on my Jodie Foster, Ariana Grande detective hat. As she said, Ariana Grand, yeah, grand she day, did. She did. 2016. And that, I will say, th- that song that came out, or that album, Dangerous Woman, that seems to be thematically oh. thematically yep. important. Ooh. Um, right? That's also just good detective work, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it really yeah. is. It really is. Um, I'm going to go with my, and this is probably wrong, but I'm going to allow myself to to take a, a big swing here. And I don't think Julia did. I don't think Julia hurt anybody, but I do think she's right that She's seeing something that is going to happen that is something supernatural, real. That polar bear with the one eye is Mm. still polar bears. I don't know. I think maybe it's like a beast of some kind. And rather than it being a ghost, maybe it is some sort of... Also, I feel like it represents uh, Danvers's dead kids like familiar because he had the polar bear the stuffed polar bear animal. Stuffed animal I, it's like very hard for me not to say a stuffy because <laughs> is that, that what is they call how, them now? That is how you refer to stuffed animals if you're a child. <laughs> I would. I think okay, that's fair. I'm going to say it's more insidious. I'm going to say that mm-hmm. polar bear and that with the eye. I think there's maybe an animal, a beast, some sort of real. Oh, and that's the killer. And, and when they say we woke her up, they don't say it's a person. They don't say this that's is true. a she. They say she's that's awake. A she. yep. can, so. a, can a virus be a she? <laughs> Yeah, it's like an old, it's like a sailing ships. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Corvettes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, you guys are leaning away from people. So I guess I should say that it was, I feel like Andy, like it's so obvious that it would be Clark, but like it's so obvious that it would be Clark right. to right. kill her. So I just feel like I got to stick with that. And for the other, for the the deaths of the scientists, um, I mean, look, if it if it is somehow the spirit of Annie Kay killing them, like that's pretty cool. So maybe mm-hmm. I'm actually maybe I'm actually leaning Whoa. toward the supernatural again. And maybe the spirit yep. of Annie Kay is a uh, gas, or maybe it it, it, it got gas. into or it got into like the polar Hexus bear like Texas and uh, Fern Gully. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> wow, that's it could be it could be. So I don't know because there's more supernatural stuff happening. Like people are seeing stuff that isn't there. There yeah. is yeah. So that, that demon, the demonic possession of Lund, she's awake. Like 
if if Annie Kay is somehow a ghost and she is somehow murdering men, her spirit, I do feel like that kind of fits in with the themes of the show. Annie Kay might be a dangerous woman to these men. Mm-hmm. All right, Ariana Grande from Ariana first. <laughs> Ariana Grande. <laughs> Well, that does it for this episode of Still Watching. As ever, you can find me on social media at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me on social media at Christress. And you can find me at Hillabuster. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias. And we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Jake Loomis. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next Sunday for episode four. Looking forward to seeing you then. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.